Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, I'm going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a detective whose childhood experiences shaped him as one of the most highly effective undercover operatives in the New South Wales Police. A colleague said, what do you think we should do? I said, oh, take the money back and give it back to him. Tell him all bets off. I think our careers are ended. Former detective Michael Kennedy was in the job for almost 20 years, working across criminal intelligence, organised crime and the State Crime Commission. Michael's unique ability to form and maintain relationships with career criminals has led him to uncover dark and complex secrets involving high-level drug smuggling, political corruption and brazen attempts to bribe judges. We'll hear some of these stories, but to start, Michael tells us about his unusual path to policing, growing up in a boy's home, the same institution attended by a number of men he would later arrest. Yeah, my parents separated in 1963. We were placed in Dr. Bernardo's. Um, both were good parents, but it just their marriage should never have been to begin with. Uh, but um, the problem in the Bernardo's home at Kiama, it was run by a fellow who ended up doing, I think, eight years jail for what he did. But, um, and he used to look after Mittagong boys' homes before he started looking after the orphanage. So when I eventually left and years later joined the police, a whole range of the, uh, the crims, both career crims and petty crims, whatever, had done time in Mittagong boys' homes and they knew this person by his reputation. And it didn't do me any harm at all in the cops to be able to talk to, especially the, the, the career crims. I think Bernie Matthews was one. He's, he's dead now. He was an armed robber. John Killick is another one. Ron Isherwood is another. Uh, Graham Henry that was the, uh, the partner of Nettie Smith. He was another. Nettie Smith included, but I, he's dead now. I never had much to do with him. He was a difficult sort of a person, but they all, most of those people, if they didn't go to Mittagong boys' homes, they had friends within the criminal circle that did. And that didn't do me any harm at all. And I guess the question as we just move off this onto some of these cases that we're going to chat about, Michael, is you mentioned that, um, you know, a lot of those those blokes, those career criminals that, that grew up pretty tough, perhaps orphanages, foster homes, um, juvenile institutions and that type of thing. And quite understandably, many of them end up sort of picking up a life of crime and what have you. What is it, Michael, that do you think, if you could sort of succinctly uh, identify, what is it that made you go the other way? I mean, you, you sort of grew up in a similar environment to some of those blokes, 
but you ended up on the other side of the fence. Good luck or good fortune? No, I think you can. I never got caught. <laughs> simple as that. Oh, there you, you go. That's toss, pretty honest. You could toss yeah. a coin. I never got caught. I never engaged in anything serious, but there were things, and uh, I never got caught. The minute you get a criminal record as a juvenile, you're finished. And then all of a sudden, you've got to try and get a job. I ended up doing an apprenticeship. It took me five years. I started work at the Sydney Morning Herald in the uh, printing industry, uh, and it didn't work for I, I did my apprenticeship, but it wasn't I wasn't very good, you know. I was I was I was hit and miss hot and I wasn't a good tradesman. One day I was, next day I wasn't, so it's not something but the police worked for me. It it worked really well. Don't ask me why, I whether I just did. And I didn't have I didn't stand on the high moral ground about crims either. Um even if the murderers, rapists, armed robbers it was just a job. Well, it was more than a job. It was a vocation. But at the same token, uh, I sort of understood why people go down that path. And I don't believe, I, th- I think most people are born good. I think society makes them bad. And the only people who think that it's biologically determined are those that have generally had fairly privileged lives. They've had good mum and dad, good school, good family structure. They haven't had to survive with none of that. And so they stand on the high moral ground and they believe in tougher sentences will fix it, which they don't. Even jail's not the answer, but even the most hardened crims will tell you, jail's not the answer. No one comes out better than they went in. But some people need to be in there and they need to be in there forever. And most of these crims would say, thank goodness some of those people don't live next door to me. So that's the complicated nature of it all, you know. You know, some of the best coppers that I had the privilege of working with and uh, and, and and learning from were blokes who, if you sort of sat down with them and, and had a bit of a yarn, had, had, had perhaps got on the wrong side of the tracks a little as young blokes. And, and, and like you say, been lucky enough to sort of maybe not get caught or be in the right place at the right time. And um, it must have also given you an ability to walk into an interview situation, sit down with somebody, have that immediate rapport. And as you and I would know, you know, that old school policing of communicating with a guy on the other side of the desk, it's, it's such an important part of the job, isn't it? Well, I, I also lived in a boarding house with three or four or five police. And they, and they were a very good influence on me. We watched the Richard Nixon talked to the people on the moon all together, you know, that's how far back. And I got on very well with those fellows. And so they influenced me into thinking maybe the career, a police will be a good career path once I was out of my apprenticeship. Because even early days, I wasn't envisaging being a tradesman for the rest of my life. But I had to get something so that I had something that I could fall back on. So you, you joined the job in 78. I'd like to take you to a case that you've um, given us a bit of an outline, and this is around about the mid-80s. It's a pretty intriguing case, which uh, basically involves parrots and, and, and heroin. Yeah, so I, I went from Bankstown Detectives. Um, I got transferred to the Bureau of Crime Intelligence. And when I went in there, there was a number of targets. I can't remember the names of the operations, but one of them involved... Uh, a couple of bird smugglers, parrot smugglers, and one of them had been charged with attempted to murder his wife. 
and the police that were investigating it, one of them in particular ended up falling from grace very badly. But we were looking at things, and I went and saw a friend who worked in customs, and he, he made it even clearer that parrot smuggling, Major Mitchell parrot smuggling, Major Mitchell parrots, was big business. This is before, this is the mid-1980s. And they used to get a suitcase, get some plastic piping, drill holes in it, put a parrot in the plastic, piece of plastic, put a a cover over each end, put a a battery-operated fan in the suitcase, put it on unaccompanied luggage to Asia, which meant customs had to be involved. These things can't happen without institutions like customs and people who control the airport. And the baggage would land in Asia, be picked up. It would find itself in Amsterdam, usually, although there was a woman who ran a private zoo in Thailand, and she used to pay for the parrots. Uh, And then a group of four Three ex-cops, one of them had been out for a fair while. He was an Olympic rower. The other one was um, a well-known, he's dead now, but he was an organised crime figure with heroin, and two serving police. Uh, We found that they had recruited someone to fly a uh, plane to Thailand uh, and deliver a heap of stolen uh, birds. That was our information. We found, we knew the name of the pilot and we knew the name of his friend. Both were well known. And they flew the plane to Thailand and they were going to come back via New Guinea. They were going to land at Port Moresby. And we figured out the best way to deal with it, let them land at Port Moresby with the heroin, which they were going to be paid with, And then we could go out and use the customs in Port Moresby, New Guinea, to say to these people, do you want to roll over and tell us everything or do you want to spend the rest of your life in a jail in Port Moresby? And we knew what the answer was going to be. Please, can we do a deal? And so there was a number of police agencies involved. I was with New South Wales Police. We had to involve other people because that's the way the system works. Uh, we're not a na- we're not a national. We we're a federated model in Australia, so the states are all autonomous from the Commonwealth, etc. Anyway, uh, the plane came down, landed in New Guinea, and we had people in northern Australia, and I think New Guinea, and different places monitoring everything, and uh, the people were taken off the plane. The negotiations were going on to have people roll over and make statements about everything. And uh, a political car came out with the politician in it uh, and it belonged to a government car with a government driver, went out to the plane, unloaded the heroin, put it in the boot, boot of the car and drove off. And that was the end of that. We knew the reality of that is once you've got that level of political involvement, it's impossible to get the politicians in our country to jump up and down about what's going on in another country because there's all sorts of relationships and not all of them are bad in terms of Australian aid, assistance and all sorts of international stuff going on. 
they, they've got to walk on eggshells. And that's what we knew had happened. We knew we'd been sold out and we knew who buy. We had a good idea. And eventually what happened was the Commissioner of the Day in New South Wales realised that he couldn't charge the two New South Wales police with criminal matters because the evidence we wanted, we were never going to be able to get access to. And so they were dealt with in terms of misconduct and they resigned. They were two detectives, both well-known, and they were charged with uh, improper relationships with criminals, which in itself is absurd because detectives have to have relationships with nasty people, and that's what they had. So the two guys involved were more concerned that everything else would come out, and they didn't trust a lot of the stuff not to come out. We were fairly convinced we would never get to the bottom of it, so they, the, the organisation just have to accept. And the politician involved went on to be quite famous. He's dead now. And uh, he, along with the two New South Wales people, with, along with another uh, serious politician, they were uh, involved in importing and exporting seafood from the Pacific region. And that was their ticket in import-export, etc., etc., and a lot of that goes on in that, that part of the world. It's third world, it's very poor, and there's all sorts of opportunities that come place through a system. In the Mediterranean, it's called uh, the Mafia. In the Arabic-speaking countries, it's called Abadai or Zayim, which means middleman or leader. In the Pacific region, it's called Wantok. And the Wantok is where... The state can't provide a safety net for a lot of people. Families do. So the patriarch helps people with all sorts of things, education, health, all sorts of things, debts, food, house loans, whatever. But in turn, you've got to vote for him or you've got to vote for someone that he says to vote for because that's his leverage. And it's a system that works. It works in most Asian countries, works in the Mediterranean it doesn't work when you export it to New York uh, because it becomes a real problem because the American state does provide safety nets and places like the mafia end up in New York running all the businesses and exploiting that for criminal activity. And did it did it bring an end to that trade or did it just sort of pop its head up elsewhere in, in a slightly different format? I'd, the best I can say is it meant that they weren't as indiscreet Michael, also around about that same time, uh, mid-80s, you you would have been working um, as a detective, I'd imagine, playing clothes. You're involved in a uh, a bribery case or an attempted bribery case involving a judge where you uh, acted as an undercover police officer. Can you give us a, a bit of an overview of operationally sort of how you came to be involved in that and how that sort of, how that unfolded? Yeah, sure. As a result of the, the last job that I've told you about, we uh, gained a number of contacts across the board, in particular people from different ethnic communities that were dabbling with the Australian uh, milieu, if you want to call them that. And we started getting information about how uh, all sorts of drugs were coming into the country 
through the airport in unaccompanied baggage. This is before 9-11. Things changed with 9-11. But up until 9-11, you could send a suitcase out of the country filled with money or into the country filled with drugs. And provided you had the right contacts, the suitcase would go onto the um, baggage system. A taxi driver would run in and grab it because he was paid and he'd drive it out to wherever. They'd open it, the drugs were inside, and there'd be very, very little. um... Occasionally what would happen, someone would dob someone in so the customs got caught up dealing with one matter and they couldn't deal with another matter. So that was when the suitcase would go through. That's just one example of how it worked. So we were involved in that sort of um, area and we were starting to find out a lot about where drugs were being obtained from after they'd been seized. There was all sorts of stuff. Then one of the informants approached us about a job where one of his relatives wanted to pay, uh, and it's part of the criminal justice case law, Judge Shillington, was sentencing someone and they wanted to know if we could arrange to bribe Judge Shillington in order that he would give the person weekend detention rather than a custodial sentence. So I then got introduced to the major player and he he owned brothels in Sydney and Canberra He owned the buildings in some cases, the businesses in others, but he was a multimillionaire. Now, Michael, when you say when you say you got introduced to him, I'm assuming you mean that you were introduced to him. Well, you're you're acting as a well, I wasn't really undercover. I was a bent copper, you know. This is Michael. He's the detective, so it was called undercover work. But in essence, this is Michael. He's the detective, and he can look after what you want. Originally, he offered me $5,000, and I explained to him, it was all recorded, I can't even bribe the cleaner for $5,000. You want to bribe a judge? You're going to have to think big, you know? So we, the negotiations took place over a long period of time, and the guy involved wasn't too bad to deal with. He was um, very easy to deal with. He looked after his family and his community. He was very generous. I didn't have a conscience over what he was over doing what we were doing at all. But I just wanted to point out, not all crims are nasty people. A lot of them do good things and do bad things, and this is part of the problem. This guy was very generous to his community. He was very generous to his relatives back overseas. He was part of a charity-based group here that provided a lot of welfare assistance. But he also was like the mafia bosses in New York. It's like Al Capone. Spent a lot of money on himself and a lot of money on everyone else and a lot of money making sure the politics uh, left him alone. Anyway, so we negotiated with him. We weren't very happy with our relationship with an external agency because things had been happening that the alarm bells kept going off all the time about, we'd tell, like for example, we asked them to locate the brothels that he had in another state, and they said they didn't know if he had any. Well, how could they not know? He advertised in the bloody newspaper. And so everybody knew 
And uh, they played games about their knowledge, about they didn't know. We knew they did. It was prostitution, which in many ways is not the crime of the century anymore, but prostitution in Australia was driven by drugs at that stage. It wasn't like Europe or Germany or France, where uh, it's a different regulated industry. Here, uh, most of the prostitutes had serious narcotics problems, and that was where we bought into it. So I went and saw the guy. We negotiated a figure. We were then approached. We needed a couple of tape recorders. We didn't tell the other agency that um, we already had one. Uh, they offered to provide us with a brand new tape recorder we could strap on there. They're called Nagra tape recorders. They use it to record conversations in space, and so there's no electronic interference can interfere with them. And you'd strap one of them with a couple of microphones, which I did when negotiating with this person. And then myself and another colleague met up with the two business people. There was a main business person and his brother, both very decent, not difficult to do with, not intimidating. We met up with them at LaSanne's restaurant at Brighton. And as my friend and I were walking into LaSanne's, I turned around and looked over the road and I noticed we were being photographed by a bunch of people on one of the verandas. And I said to him, uh, we're being followed. We're being watched. And you know who's doing this? He said, yes, so do I. I said, they're going to try and shut us down because obviously we've stumbled over something we don't know what it is. But in playing that silly game with them, they thought we did know what it was. So, or they thought that we knew more than what we knew. We only knew about what we were dealing with. We also knew a lot of things were suspicious, but that was about it. Uh, that was the, that we were in the intelligence area, so we got feedback, we had gossip, we had intelligence, we had no hard evidence. And I said to my colleague, are you happy about this? He said, no, not really, but we'll go inside, and we did. I think he gave us 30-odd or $35,000. We had a meal, and uh, as we came out, the people were still there, and a colleague said, what do you think we should do? I said, oh, take the money back and give it back to him, tell him all bets off. I think our careers are ended. If they're going to go to this much trouble, we just don't know what they're going to do. And this is an area where you can't depend on organisations to support people because there's all sorts of politics involved. They're always only a shit kicker. That's all I was, you know. I made the coffee, got the sandwiches, did a bit of undercover work, went to court. I was nothing special. And neither was my colleague who was the detective sergeant. We knew what, what we were likely facing. We weren't ignorant or stupid. Uh, we'd been through it all before with the New Guinea business. And we'd, we were stumbling over stuff that we weren't supposed to because we'd, we'd maintained a network of informants and people, not just criminals, but everywhere, who were feeding us information that was working out to be really, really spot on. So we, we then went out, um, went back to the Crime Commission with the money. The two individuals were arrested and charged with attempt bribery and that. Then the fun started because they, uh, they employed a lawyer who was very politically connected. 
they employed a senior counsel who was totally ruthless and had ice water in his veins. In the trial, it just became a nightmare. All sorts of questions were asked of me. I think three weeks I had to give evidence, and there was a voir dire as well. And they questioned me about being abused when I was young. They were trying to make out I had mental mental health issues, which I don't and never did have. I was stressed out sometimes, but um, I had no clinical problems or no problems that needed medication or anything like that or long-term care. And the court matter went on for days. It was all sorts of things were revealed about me that I wish they weren't, but they were. In the end, the jury found uh, both men guilty and they were sentenced. I had a boss called Dennis Gilligan who was as tough as nails and he's not usually very sympathetic. And at the end of the matter, he rang me and he said, take two weeks off. I said, oh, I don't have any, any annual leave left. I'm the assistant commissioner. I've just said, you've got annual leave. Take two weeks off. So it was a very taxing time. The guy, they eventually appealed and one of them got off on appeal, which wasn't a bad thing. The other one, the conviction stayed. The Crime Commission tried to pretend they didn't know about sorts of things. And eventually in the Woodraw Commission, something arose out of that in relation to the informant where two police were hung, dried and quartered in front of the public and the person from the the, uh, Royal Commission knew, knew that they hadn't been involved because he knew the full story of the uh, attempted bribery of Judge Shillington. But at no stage did anyone say, well, hang on, you're publicly berating these two who simply didn't know anything about what was going on. Uh, Those two guys ended up getting out of the police They'll be on medication the rest of their lives. So that's the, that's the system that, that exists. And it's the one that a lot of cops have got to navigate through. And policing is a very difficult work. It's like anything to do with emergency services or even the Australian Defence Force. There's a lot of, lot of very stressful stuff goes on that on the average practitioner on a day-to-day basis deals with all of that. It's only years down the path that it takes its toll on them. Uh, when they're trying to reinvent themselves, they get exhausted, you know. I, I love my job. And in the end, I was so exhausted. I was on my way to work one day, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. And I'd just been promoted, and I resigned. And that was the end of that. I said, I'll wait for another year or two. You'll get a pension. I don't want a bloody pension. I want to get out. That's the way it is. Um, with the Shillington matter, we never put in for commendations back then. If, if ever I got one, someone else put in. I didn't apply for that stuff. Uh, I didn't want it. But it was a difficult job. Um, the guy who prosecuted it was Mark Tedeschi. Who is, I, I always liked Mark Tedeschi. He's very supportive. The solicitor that instructed him is now a Supreme Court judge or a district court judge. And she's a very decent person. And they were very supportive of me all the way through the uh, trial matter, which was, they didn't go overboard, but I knew that they had my interests at heart as best as they could without interfering with the process. So that really mattered. Um, In other matters I've had, the Crown couldn't have cared less. You're on your own, you know. So I, I think that 
it ended up being case law in terms of they tried to prove agent provocateur. They couldn't because agent provocateur is not an issue in this country like in the United States. If you're pretty upfront about it, it's not a it's you're safe. In the United States, agent provocateur, provocateur or importuning means that anything that arises out of the agent provocateur can't be used as evidence. Whereas here, that doesn't. That's not the case. Just explain that definition of agent provocateur as it as it stands in the in the Australian court. Well, as it stands as the definition, it means I approached the, the guy involved. I approached him. And I said, um, look, if you give me so much money, I can bribe Judge Shillington on your behalf. But that's not what happened. He approached me. I just didn't tell him, no, I couldn't do it. They said then that that was agent provocateur because I should have said to him, no, I can't do it. I'm an honest policeman. Well, I didn't do that. I said, yeah, I can see. Let's see what I can do. So the agent provocateur is where I approach them or whether I've got drugs is another way it is. And I offer to sell the person drugs. That's agent provocateur. I've done undercover work as well with drugs. And they've said to me, are you in the police? And on a couple of occasions I said, what do you think? I'm, I'm an idiot. Of course I'm not in the police. What am I supposed to say? Oh, yeah, sure. But at other times I've said, yeah, I am in the police. And a guy was holding a gun on me and I, he said, are you in the police? I said, yes, I am. And have you got a license for that? I had to think pretty quick. And he said, no, well, you better put it away because you'll get yourself into a lot of trouble. And then I breathed and I sat down and had a meal with the family. So there's all sorts of things that go on. And in the matter involving the judge, we had to use all of our resources to try and make it work because it involved the judge And what we were doing was representing the criminal justice system and Shillington's reputation was on the line. So I had to do the right thing by him. You worked quite a bit in these roles, in these undercover roles, how does that work? You, when you walk into that, you're having that discussion. What What's going through your mind there? How does, how does that feel when you're basically projecting yourself as being something that you're not, knowing in essence that this person is um, unbeknowingly committing an offence and they're going to get done for it? Yeah, Ricky Gervais discussed that at the Academy Awards. A bunch of people who pretended they were someone else for a living, and that's what I did. So if you work in Hollywood, you get an Oscar for it. If you work in uh, the police, they make a movie about you, but you get no recognition, you know. So I was conscious of the fact that I was lying. I'm not a psychopath or sociopath. So I was aware of the fact that I was lying. I was also aware of the fact that um, something had to be done about these things. And you couldn't use normal means. So I was comfortable with the fact because I didn't stand on the high moral ground. I never portrayed these people as being bad people other than what they were doing. In fact, a lot of them were very complicated people. And uh, I just sort of did it what I did. And everything I did usually was recorded. 
So I didn't have to add anything or take anything away. Whatever was recorded was recorded, and whatever the courts decided was what they decided. And in some instances, they threw the evidence out for some technicality I didn't understand. In other instances, they didn't. But never in a million years did any of the crims retaliate one way or the other towards my family or anything. My number was in the phone book. They could find me. A lot of crims knew where I lived. The ethical thing is the ends don't justify the means, but the problem with policing is if you're not bra- if it's lawful, then the normal ethical consideration is in the middle. It's neither ethical nor unethical. So what I was doing was in the middle. It was lawful, and I was happy with that. And Michael, you've done you've done other forms of undercover work. This is not the only time that you've done it. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've worked as uh, selling drugs and that and that type of thing. Is that, am I right? Not selling drugs, buying them usually. Right, and obviously it's a similar role. And you took the same approach to that type of thing. Pretty well. I'd get introduced. I would never introduce myself. I was introduced. This is so and so. He's interested in what you can give him. Are you interested in what you? What do you want? Well, the answer. What do you got? We got so and so, so and so, and so and so. There's the entrepreneur. There's the um, agent provocateur out the window because they're saying I can sell you this, this, and this. Uh, on one occasion, I was with a um, very good friend who's pretty high profile these days. Uh, we were talking to a, uh, a drug dealer about supplying us with 10 kilos of uh, hash oil. And anyway, the guy says, oh, I don't have any hash oil left. I've got some heroin. And my mate said, um, okay, 10 kilos of heroin. Well, the price difference between the two was massive. And I sort of kicked him and he, he, he didn't realise. The guy said, and the guy looked at us both. He said, oh, you make me break out in goose pimples when you talk that sort of language. And then we had a break and I said, oh, Nick, what are you doing? And he said, how much money do we need? I said, oh, 10 kilos. I think you need about a million bucks in cash. It was about 100000 a kilo, roughly. I said, we were paying $10,000 for 10 kilos of hash oil. All of a sudden, you want 10 kilos of heroin. Anyway, we ended up getting a bit of this and a bit of that, and the guy was a target. So it didn't matter what he gave us. Um, as long as it was something, we could deal with it. And we were very happy with that because he was a problem. And, mate, were those operations fairly short-term or, or we, did you spend time long-term undercover? Uh, a couple of them were two, three weeks. There was nothing, although there was one that took five years. We were in and out of that place negotiating, talking to crims, uh, trying to work out what the best angle was. It grew bigger and bigger. Uh, some of the people involved were very innocent people and just car dealers. Some of them were crims. Uh, some of the crims were trying to reinvent themselves. So you've got all of these things that you've got to try and take into account. You don't want to drag crims into it if they're trying to reinvent themselves and force them to give evidence against someone who's going to have an impact on their lives. You try to make it so that all of that's separated. That's, and that's about reputation. 
not all police do it that way. Uh, not all royal commissions do it that way. But it's not just simply about getting something to make you look good. Your reputation has to be able to withstand scrutiny. Uh, because otherwise you're not going to get anyone else coming to you and talking to you about things that need to be spoken about. That's why you've got to be beyond reproach in a lot of this stuff, you know. You left the job in 97, and I'm going to fast forward a little. I know that um, you lecture in the area of criminology and that type of thing. You've picked up a PhD along the way. Michael, can you give us a little bit of a... um, uh, a keyhole into your world now since leaving the police and now I guess you'd be classified almost as an academic. I'm not particularly proud of it, I've got to tell you, because I don't, <laughs> but, but I am, you know. I left the police uh, and had no, I just left. I had no contingency plan. And then I got offered a job with the ABC with by Michael Jenkins. He was the producer of um, a, a movie, a couple of movies called Blue Murder, and he was developing a series over here called Wildside. So I was offered a job there as a consultant. I got paid for more for a day's work there than I did for a week's worth in the police. So I worked in the drama industry and developed some good friends. Um, I also realised why I didn't particularly like a lot of actors. I, all of a sudden became very obvious. why. But the writers and the researchers were different people. Mike Jenkins was a terrific guy, and there was another guy called Steve Knappman who'd made a movie called The Leaving of Liverpool, which, as it turns out, was all about Bernardo's and other things. So he actually got my, my background. And while I was working, they said, why don't you go to uni? I said, oh, I've always been anti, you know. I did an apprenticeship and all that. But, oh, you'd, you'd find it easy, you know. So I enrolled in university at Western Sydney. I just enrolled in anything. And they offered me a Bachelor of Social Science Youth Work. I had no intention of ever being a youth worker. But I thought, oh, well, I'll do that. And if it, there might be something else. In the meantime, they gave me more work. So it paid for my uni. I went to uni and it was easy. I had lots of life experience that I could attach theories to. I ended up thinking, I like Karl Marx and I liked Antonio Gramsci. I believe in equal opportunities and looking after the disadvantaged. My wife's Indigenous, that's another issue. Uh, my dad was gay. So that's something else that I was, I was able to go in and the academics were always telling me, oh, the police are all homophobic. Well, I'm not. Uh, the police are all racist. Well, I'm not. And neither are any of my friends. There are people we don't like, people we do like. We don't like arseholes. That's what the major thing with policing is. Uh, I got into academia. I got an honours year. I did uh, an honours year in um, zero tolerance policing and Arabic speaking males. And then at the end of my honours year, I applied for a PhD. And I got a PhD on a Marxist analysis of police reform. Then I was in charge of the policing program at Western Sydney. And I do other things than teaching. I'm also developing programs, curriculum, writing papers, trying to write another book. I just want to thank you so much for um, for taking the time to drop in. You've come in via the Canberra studio to chat to us today. Thanks for your honesty and you know, always such an intriguing 
time throughout Australia, but particularly in New South Wales policing during those 80s and uh, 70s, 80s and 90s. Thank you so much, very sincerely, for your service over that 20 years. And uh, But also, you know, for, for doing what you're doing now and uh, taking all that experience and channeling it through those academic um uh, avenues and uh, you, you, you've done you've done fantastically well, Michael. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and chat to you. Good on you. Thanks very much. Any time. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.